Hey everybody, this is episode 139 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas on a Tuesday today with Mr. James Dodds back in the house. How are you doing today, sir? Awesome. It's good to have you back so quickly. Yeah, thanks. We just recorded episodes 132 and 136 with James talking about how people or why people don't get their goals. And we had so much fun that we brought you back here for episode 139 to talk about a different topic that I think we touched on maybe indirectly in that conversation. But this is about what we're going to talk about today is about choosing a coach or how to recognize qualities in a good coach for you. So we're going to do this ping pong style like we did our episode 132 on why people don't get their goals where we haven't shared our lists and we're just kind of go back and forth ripping riffing on this topic of what makes basically what makes a good coach. And I think we're just going to jump right in because I know this is going to be interesting and dense and I have some ideas about where this might go, but I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> so it's going to be fascinating. And then at the end, we're going to come back to a little bit of introspection from each of us on our own identity as coaches. So hopefully you'll enjoy that. But as we've talked about many times on this podcast, finding a good coach is really important to, I think, being your best athlete. And if you have that opportunity and maybe or you maybe already have a coach and you need to assess whether or not that's the right person for you. Hopefully this episode will be helpful. So I want to throw it to you first since this was I- your idea on the topic. I want to throw it to you to start the the ping pong back and forth. What's your what's your number 1? All right, I'm going to throw out <clears throat> what what may be the most obvious um attribute i guess i don't know if i'm looking at these as characteristics or attributes but both of those will work but um so what might be thought of as the most obvious but i i look at it as like a foundational fundamental piece and then i think of it as a springboard so by no means if someone's mastered this are they a great coach but coming out of the shoot with knowing their methodology or knowing knowing the science of running um and so the reason why i say that uh it's the foundation and the springboard is it's the heart of what we're doing. Usually the knowledge gap is why people will initial, initially reach out. There, there's a, a lack in knowledge on how to do something, and so they go seek out someone who is a subject matter expert, and they're thinking, um, I want to make sure I, I do this the right way, whether that be in the way of form or when I say methodology, I think about building out macros. So like, um, Or we've, you've heard me say multiple times, like looking at it through the lens of frequency, volume, intensity, and being able to lay out a plan that's both going to develop someone, give them the right kind of stressors to get better uh, without breaking them. Um, but of course coming close to that line of breaking because that's how you help them reach their goal. Um, so I think that that fundamental piece is knowing your methodology, knowing your science, that science can bleed over into, I don't, I don't hold myself accountable to be a complete subject matter expert on nutrition or a complete subject matter expert on hydration or recovery, um, or injury prevention or weight training that supports the running in and itself where I hold myself accountable is in and of itself, I know how to develop out macro cycles and write out schedules in such a way that I know people are going to develop and get better without breaking them. And then I try to learn as much as I can in all of those other categories. So I know when we say methodology and science, it could extend um, to a vast area, but I'm primarily meaning you got to know your methodology. You got to know, um, you know, how you would pr- approach this system. 
I've, I, I used to daydream of uh, there was a time where I wanted to go and be a cross country coach. And if I were to write out curriculum for an entire school district, I had it already in my mind where uh, high school, like high school seniors would run 60 mile weeks, juniors 50, fre- uh, sophomores 40, freshmen 30. And prior to that, um, I'd get them to 20, 25 miles a week. Um, but anything under like that sixth grade level, I would just try to keep running in and of itself really fun uh, for what I would call kids. So, you know, anything sixth grade or younger. Um, and it's because one of those reasons is because I would consider high school coaches and they'd have athletes running hundred mile weeks, but I see that as squeezing the sponge. So you pass those athletes off to college coaches and there's no, there's nothing else to squeeze out of that sponge. So you got, you got some kids that can set some pretty cool high school records on hundred mile weeks and then seem very promising coming out of high school, going into college, but then what's left in them? Are they just going to be loaded with stress fractures when they go into the college programs? Maybe that could be true. Maybe not. I, I may be making a vast overgeneralization, but where I'm going with this is that a coach should come to the table understanding this like big picture view of you know methodology and how to develop people in the short term and the long term. You got to know your science. Know your shit, basically. Yeah. One thing that's tricky about that, though, so I want to just throw a question back to you, is that, you know, if you look at, I mean, heck, even in the personal training world, you can see someone might be certified in something. And in running, we have a RRCA, Roadrunners Club of America certification. You can take coursework to be certified as a coach. You can also become USATF certified or US Track and Field certified as a coach. But how do you know if someone knows? I mean, because in my view, those quote unquote certifications are pretty worthless in that even if someone has one of those, it doesn't necessarily necessarily mean that they really know their shit because those certifications are frankly kind of meaningless and not hard to get. It's sitting through a couple of days of coursework on a weekend and not really understanding or mastering the content. So if if that was the barometer, if knowing your shit is the barometer, then how would you tell someone to find out if somebody knows their stuff? First off, I agree in the, in the sense that like the certification may or may not mean anything. Um, so I'm with you there because if someone came and said they're, they're a certified RRCA coach or, or, you know, in USA track and field, whatever the certifications are out there, I'd say, welcome to the start line. <laughs> like that's, that's all I'm saying here is that you, in some ways, it's nice because it's like, okay, well, they have studied something and passed a test on, on content. And so it does mean something. And I, I think this is very similar, almost interviewing people for jobs in the business world. Uh, a lot of great people come to you with uh, degrees. <laughs> and then, so to answer your question, I'm leading into the answer to your question. And it, it then goes into the questions you can ask them and then even the questions they're asking you. So it's very easy for me to identify because I've been living in this space for a decade now. Um, but, but I think you've got your, if, you, if you're an individual, and on one hand, it may be hard to get it all in one conversation. I think athletes actually just join a group and they kind of discover it over time and maybe try a new coach and, and start to piece together what they need and figure it out m- more so in hindsight. But, you know, I would want to bring the, the little knowledge base that I have, like, Hey, I'm X runner and I'm doing these things. Am I going about it right? Like what challenges would you have for me? What questions would you have for me? Like, how do I go? I would even almost ask, how do I go about identifying, you know, is this the right place for me? And hopefully you'd get a fill in that conversation 
um, if they know their shit? Are, are they talking to like, well, you know, I want you running this way and here's why? Like, are they just telling you what to do or, or can they explain a little bit of the why? Always ask why. Like, that's yep. interesting. You told me I need to run four days a week. Okay, well, why is that? Why, why would I need to run four days a week? Or you said that, you know, like you, you like to get your runners to 30-mile weeks or 40-mile, whatever it is. Uh, why is that? Like, help me understand. And if they can piece together gaps that make you feel good, like, gosh, they know something I don't. I trust them enough. Then that, that's enough to, to move forward then and there. Yeah. I would also add I would look for a couple of other things on this idea of whether or not they know their stuff. One would be experience. You know, you want to see that they've been doing this for a little bit, have an, have an athlete track record that may include athletes that are similar to you. So you can say, all right, well, that's a barometer that they know something. They've done this before with other athletes that are similar to me. And or you might also find out what their coaching tree looks like. You know, who have they learned from? What is their background in coaching? You know, personally, I have no certifications in coaching, but... I feel confident about my ability because now I have 15 years of experience doing it at different levels. And so I think experience is something you can look to. The other thing I would want to see from a coach is that they can clearly articulate their core principles because at the end of the day, I mean, yeah, there's, there's some basic things that generally all running coaches kind of agree to, but I think a, a good coach can, can, can develop their own version of that and then be able to strongly articulate it. You know, here are the three or four things that matter in my program and then be able to tell you the why behind those three or four things. And for, for every coach, it might look a little bit differently. You know, I put, I put, I've put together a little document I call the morning show way, which is my Wednesday morning group kind of highlights the key principles behind our training philosophy and all fits within the context of, Arthur Lydiard's principles, rogue training principles broadly, but it's my version of that. My, my things that matter, my, my flavor of it, so to speak with my stamp on it. And, you know, it's like, I'm going to stand on that and believe really firmly in it and be able to tell you exactly why every little bullet point is in there and why I didn't include certain things as well. And so having that strong philosophy as a coach, I think is also another sign or if you're an athlete, that's also another sign that a coach knows what they're talking about because we can, you know, we can all interpret things differently and apply things a little bit differently and that's okay. But it, you have to have a strong vision as a coach for how you're doing it. And if you don't, then you're probably just copycatting something and that's not, that's not going to be powerful. All right. So I like that. Starting with the point number one, first, you just got to know your shit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to start with something a little more practical, too, since you started there, which is, I think, also in a coach, and this is where both sides come in, but you ha you have to know that coach's style, and their style has to match your style in terms of frequency and approach to communication, and this is where I think it's important to recognize that not all athlete coach relationships, if you have a good coach and a good athlete are going to work because everybody's going to match a little differently, just like you might match differently in relationships, whether they be platonic or otherwise. And coach athlete relationships are kind of the same way. And coaches are going to have different styles in terms of how they communicate the frequency at which they communicate, what level they might charge you if they're charging you, 
for different levels of communication and touch. And that has to be compatible with your style. You know, I have some runners <clears throat> that don't need a lot from me and don't, don't want a lot from me. You know, they show up, they do the work in the context of our group. You know, I meet with them maybe once a season or chat with them once a season about what their plan is. And then they just go do. And I only hear them on the exception. And that's, that's what they want from me and that's what they get. Some people want more. And they command it. But I'm also a coach that requires an athlete to be proactive. You know, if they need something from me, I need to, I need to know. And yeah, I will reach out periodically and check in with people and that sort of thing. But that's not something somebody can count on. So if they're, if they're counting on me to always be proactive and them not be, then our relationship as coach-athlete isn't going to probably work. Like I need an athlete, if they need more, to be proactive about getting more from me. And I'll give it. I'll freely give it. But it's got to be coming from them proactively. And that's just my style. But there are other coaches that have different styles. And so I think it's important to recognize that you want to find compatibility and communication, approach, frequency, style when you're looking for a coach. Because if you don't have that, it's probably not going to work. Yeah, uh, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm glad you compared it even to relationships at one point there. Um, Because, yeah, it's true. Um, It's... what do they say? Like communication is like 55% body language, 37% tonality, and then only 7% are the words you say. And yet I have a tendency to, you know, I'm aware of those things, but I have a tendency to think I got most of my communication done when I send out my weekly email. But I also remind myself that I think only half the people read those emails. So I try to also communicate those things in person, but I'm glad you're touching on the alignment of it um, and sort of challenging the listener to go out and find what they need because, um, yeah, if you're someone that wants to feel like your coach is pursuing you, um, then there may be those coaches out there. Um, and you're laying, you have like 100 people in your group. The, the chances of you being able to individually pursue every single one of them, even though I've been blown away by your ability to schedule one-on-ones and always offer them, I'm like, <laughs> I would not even dare offer that if my group was 100. I'd be like, you guys like follow the pack around you. I'm kidding. I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> I try, but um, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm still proactive in a way. But for that person who needs it all the time, they have to bring it to me. Yeah, yeah, because that can even go into like you, you, you may end up just needing um, <clears throat> a smaller group or something. But um, I'm glad you pointed out the communication factor because there's a lot of, I guess, um, that's how you can like misperceive intentions. And that's kind of a sad thing. Like a coach could have a really great intention, an athlete could have a really great intention, and then they're just both not clicking because of communication, a lack of alignment on communication. So I didn't have that one on my list. It's interesting that you came out of the shoot with that one, <laughs> and you called it practical. I think it's even, it's both practical and um, somewhat meta. Like you know, I I didn't mm. even think to go to the communication factor on um, yep. coaching. So yeah, and I think that's something you can ask somebody. When you, if you're talking to a coach, what's your style, frequency, and, and in some cases you have to plan that. You know, some coaches, if you're doing it online, it's you have to choose a level. You know, I get to communicate once a week or whatever that may be. Unlimited email, not unlimited email. You know, those are different things that come into play. And so that, to me, is the practical part. You know, how often and how can I communicate with you if if the relationship might be virtual? You know, for me, I also tell people, hey, look, text me. You know, if you have a quick question, 
shoot me a text. I give my cell phone number in every single Thursday email that I send out. If you have a question about what you're doing for your long run, shoot me a text. And that works better for me because I can address it quickly. And look, if they text me at 10 p.m. on a Friday before Saturday long run, fine. I'm cool with that. Like, that's how I operate. Some coaches would not be okay with that. <laughs> so, again, just got to figure out what that style is, both in terms of just the practical elements of communication, but also just that that gelling. Yeah. Is there, is there going to be a, a match, so yeah. to speak? Like, you might match on Tinder or something. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of, maybe there's a coaching app like that, right? Swipe right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that's my second, my first one. What's your second one? Adaptability is what I wrote next. And I'm thinking about it in a couple of different ways. Um, I'm going to say my, my real big reason for it um, last, but I would say there's layers to it. So as a coach, you definitely have to be adaptable in, just in the workout in and of itself. So an athlete gets into a workout, you see their form getting sloppy, you're going to need to call them out of that workout and adapt right in that moment. Um, and there's other like small logistic things. Um, God bless my team. Like we've, Jagar and I coached together and we've forgotten cups before. So we kind of like, um, you know, respond to things in real time um, just with the logistics around the workout or how the workout's going for athletes in and of themselves. Um, but the real reason why I wrote adaptability is uh, oh so another layer in there is um you know given the season itself so what happens when an athlete gets injured um, or they're not progressing at the rate that they were expecting to do you just stick with what was written on week 12 in the training plan because it happens to be week 12 or do you sit down and have another conversation and you regroup and you say based on the first eight weeks and what i've seen in the last couple we're gonna have to now adapt we're gonna have to change things up here and then, of course, the, the, the very big picture of um, adaptability that I came to the table with was I, I've always carried in the back of my mind from the first day of coaching, and it's probably because I had a teaching background and somewhat of a, I was groomed to be a pastor. Um, when I was first hired at Rogue, uh, Ruth and Steve both told me, don't worry about the science. We've got that covered. We'll supply that to you. We need you to do a lot of other things that, are, that we're going to read off this list in just a second. <clears throat> but I got obsessed because that was my weak point at the time. I didn't know anything about the science of the methodology. So I studied it inside out and I obsessed myself with writing perfect programs only to arrive at a point that it doesn't ma matter how great your program is and how beautiful it looks in an Excel spreadsheet. If you can't help break that curriculum down to the individuals that are standing in front of you. And so I think, I think that's the true of a great teacher as well. School districts will give them a curriculum but what makes a great teacher is not moving through that curriculum, not their ability to say, I've mastered this subject and I can speak about this subject eloquently and I hope people like listening to me when I um, speak about it. But rather what makes a great coach is the ability to take that and say, okay, I know this is where we want this athlete and ideally we would get them here. Hopefully they'll hit on 80 to 90% of what's written on the schedule. Um, but now I've got to translate everything I have on paper. This is almost like to communication, I guess, but I've got to translate it and get it into the heart and the mind of the athlete in front of me and help them move along their own journey and their own path. And when you can make it resonate for your athletes, when you can adapt that, uh, that curriculum into something they want to be a part of, you're leaning towards a better coach. I like it. I would I would also add an additional layer to the adaptability part of that 
equation, which is that, yes, they also have, they have to be able to adapt to the individual and or to the group that they're working with, but they also have to adapt within a cycle. You know, as you said, you can lay out the perfect plan in an Excel spreadsheet, but then five or six weeks in, if everybody's too beat up to do the workout you have on paper, you have to recognize that, make an adjustment, maybe switch things up a little bit in order to get the right outcome at that point. So you also have to be able to recognize that no plan is set in stone and you have to be able to take the inputs you're getting from the group, from the individual, from the season and make adjustments along the way. Otherwise, if you're just head down, rotely following a schedule, that's not coaching. <laughs> that's just that's just facilitating. Yeah. So that's another part of adaptability that I would also mention. But going back to your point about that individual, you know, I often get the question in the context of our groups about adaptability for an individual because we have group-based training. And so inevitably we're not writing individual training plans for every athlete. We're, we're writing a group plan for a given group and then we're applying that across a set of athletes. And the adjustments come in different paces for different athletes, maybe different volume happening within those workouts for different athletes. Maybe how they structure their week is going to be different. And so there's a, still a lot of individuality that comes. And, and I think if for road coaches doing it well, they're also checking in with athletes during workouts, making little adjustments based on what they're seeing from somebody. Hey, back off here, amp down there, stop the workout. Now you've gone too far. Those types of things are happening at the individual level. And so to me, there's still a lot of individuality happening. And then, of course, when it comes to race plans and race discussions, it's what's your individual goal? What's your individual plan for that race? All of that is still individual. So, yes, there's this this envelope, so to speak, that is the group plan. But there's a lot of opportunity for individualization within it. And our our belief is that because the group accountability is there and the synergy of the group is there in those workouts, that's more powerful than maybe an individual program because we still have a lot of variables that we can individualize within the context of that group training. And so that's a little bit of how I explain that to people. But, but then that individual, even in the context of our world, has to be willing to engage in those conversations with me reach out in a workout when they're struggling and say hey what should i do here have you know schedule the one-on-ones which i provide schedule options for but some people take me up on it some people don't i met with an athlete today the first time he's new to our group and he's training for his first marathon and we talked about his plan in the context of the group plan and we decided that because he was ramping up with more aerobic volume than he's ever done and we, and, but he's a cyclist too, that we need to actually mix some cycling into his plan more so than I normally would, including medium long days that are actually combo bike run, where we kind of start out with more heavy cycling and then over the schedule we'll build more heavy running in on those days, but we're still going to actually maintain biking in the whole time. That's an individualization for somebody that is pretty rare in my world, but I thought he needed in order to adapt to the program. So agree with you. Adaptability important. 
Yeah, I like I like that you brought up um, that last athlete because I, I forgot to even add it when I was going through the layers. But that happens quite a bit, um, whether it's that they're involved in another sport or they come to the um, table with an injury. I've got athletes that do long runs on a Saturday and then they go play soccer games. <clears throat> and so I've got to take into consideration. Uh, I remember the first season I coached James Greenham. He's playing Gaelic football as well. So, you know, you've got these other um, details in an athlete's life that aren't being considered when you're writing out that beautiful macro and putting it in an Excel spreadsheet. And I used to grade myself just on that. Uh, but to kind of tie it back to that first point, that's why I started with me methodology because I think that if you don't know the rules of the game and you don't know the rules of thumb and you don't know your science and you don't know the windows to play in, then how can you adapt it? Uh, that's when you'll that's when you'll get exposed because if you can only follow one plan, then it'll show up when an athlete needs you to change something and inevitably something will need to be changed. And then the last comment I wanted to make because I think this is just fun and I hope uh, uh, listeners like the dialogue but when you were talking about making adjustments in a workout I've never done this I secretly want to <laughs> but I, I will never do it actually because it's aggressive for my personality type but you remember that Prefontaine movie where um, Donald Sutherland's the coach he's playing Bill Bowerman and he literally puts his hand on Priest's throat like it looks like he's choking him he's not squeezing but he walks up to Pre and he just puts his hand on his throat and yeah. with his two fingers he's he's feeling his his uh his pulse. His pulse. Yeah. And I've always been like, wow, that's next level coaching. Like when you're <laughs> athletes, you know, you're so on that level where it's like, I am your leader and listen to me, boy, <laughs> yeah. you are running too hard. Your heart <laughs> is, is even under my control. Your heartbeat. Don't worry. I won't start choking. Athletes, you won't but. please don't. That sounds like a liability. Okay, so that's your second. I'm going to go to my second, which I think you'll like. Maybe it's already on your list, but I'm beating you to it. It's trust. And trust is a word I think that's often overused and I think would be commonly used in the context of a coach-athlete relationship is you have to trust your coach. You hear that all the time. You have to trust your coach. But I'm not going to not say it <laughs> because a lot of people might say it and I want to give a little nuance to it, which is that you have to trust your coach. You also have to trust the plan because I think a plan that's trusted or a coach that's trusted that is less perfect is probably better than an untrusted plan or coach that might be perfect. And so you have to have that buy-in to what you're doing, what you're getting from your coach. And I think that's both created by the coach by giving you confidence in what you're doing it's also something that has to come from the athlete. And I think sometimes it even has to come in the form of blind trust where you say, look, I don't know. I don't know if this is going to work for me, but I'm going to follow it to a T. I'm going to tell them I'm going to, I'm going to do exactly as I'm told so that I can actually give the program a chance of working for me or not. So I can find out. Because I do find that there's a lot of people that are kind of half in on trust. They think, yeah, I'll listen to my coach. But when he tells me this, I'm meh, kind of do that sometimes, don't do that other times. And they're not all in on the program. They kind of have the program plus their modifications <laughs> that they kind of keep to themselves, maybe don't share. But I don't know, it somehow gives them this feeling of control or power or maybe they haven't relinquished 
everything to their coach to say, all right, this person fully has it. Maybe they still have some doubts. But you can't operate that way. It just just doesn't work. And now that's not to say that you have to blindly just go do everything that a coach says without asking questions or without understanding. If you don't understand or if you think it's not right for you, you got to say it, ask, have that conversation, and then let whatever outcome come out of that. And maybe it's a compromise. Maybe it's an adjustment. Maybe it's not. Maybe you'll understand and then you go do. But you have to just give yourself the opportunity for that coach's methods, that coach's approach to work for you. And if you keep these little secret modifications on the side to yourself or like, yeah, you know, coach said to do this, but I'm not going to do that or whatever it may be, then you're not allowing, it's not, first of all, it's not fair to your coach. And secondly, you're not probably going to be a hundred percent as successful as you could be under that program because you're not fully into it. It's kind of in a lot of ways, sort of like, I see this a lot with athletes that are injured and they go to a practitioner whether it be a Cairo PT, whatever. And they get a list of recommendations and they kind of pick and choose like it's a menu. Oh, I'll do those exercises, but that one's no fun. So I won't do it. Or, you know, they say to do it every day. I'm kind of doing it every other day, <laughs> you know? And, and so you end up in a situation where they're still injured two weeks later and they say, Oh, this person's not working for me. It's like, well, no, because you haven't really given it a shot. And I think that sometimes happens with athletes. Ah, this coach just isn't working for me. Well, did you really give it all? Did you really trust? Even if you have to kind of put your disbeliefs, your doubts to the side and just follow it. Because for me, when I'm in, I'm in. And yeah, I'm a coach myself. And I might think, ah, I might do that differently. But if those are the, th- if that's the conversation I'm having in my head, have it with the coach and then either adjust or don't adjust based on that conversation, but you got to trust. Yeah, I like that one. Um, I'm going to try to keep it under that umbrella. It, it's similar to one that I wrote, but a couple of responses that came to mind is one, yeah, you can't clearly evaluate in hindsight either um, if, you d- if you didn't trust the program or the coach and really give it a fair shake. Um, and what really came to mind, I know I've done this before, but I thought of golf again. And when it comes to putting, really the swing in general, but especially when it comes to putting, the hardest part of the game, uh, I evaluate based on how I, my ability to hit the ball exactly where I wanted it to. Now, on one hand, we always want to put it in the cup, but I can't reevaluate my putting stroke if I'm not buying completely into the decision that I made. So if I'm thinking I wanted it to be two balls outside the cup and it's going to break just enough and die, die in the cup or put it in the back, if I don't stick to the plan that I had in my mind, then I can't reevaluate on the next hole. And I'm, so I'm walking around with a little bit of insecurity on every single hole and basically retrying it every, each hole that I get to. Got to commit. Yeah, you have to commit. And, and, and I guess that came to mind because you said uh, go in with a little bit of blind faith. And you gave the great disclaimer of um, – you know, don't just do everything a person says, ask them, talk, you know, et cetera. But yeah, if you don't give them that trust, I had a conversation with a colleague today and he said that there are two kinds of people, <laughs> the way he looks at the world, um, at least within the context of this conversation, he was a win me people and lose me people. Um, and so he had put me in a bucket of lose me people, meaning everyone actually gets my trust right out of the gate. So th- this topic actually is quite easy for me. I come in with, com- with blind faith, trust, like, 
whether we're talking friendships, coaches, whatever it may be, everybody starts off as high as you possibly can simply because you're a human on earth. And then you cross me, you've lost it, and ever getting it back is going to be really freaking hard. But I'm a lose me person. So those listeners, you're probably doing it. You're trusting your coach. You're giving it a fair shake. So then to those win me people, the skeptics that come in and say, you don't have me until you've proven something. I think you are going to have to step out on a little bit of a limb. And this is where I'm going to transition to the how because my topic I wrote, and I think it pairs well here, is they have your best interest in mind. So I, I had written down a great coach has your best interest in mind. And I think that's the path for building trust. Knowing that on day one is going to be really hard. So I think take the blind leap of faith that you're talking about. Um, try to buy in and commit. And then evaluate, do you feel like this person has your best interest in mind? And if we flip that on to coaches, um, that's being able to um, pull someone out of a workout, even though you know it's the hard thing to do, or you might disappoint them that day, but um, you make sure that uh, they're, all, they're, they're always safe. Like if you really feel like their best interest is in not doing that workout, then you hold them out of the workout, even if they're pissed about it. Um, maybe it's also letting them go sometimes. Maybe identifying that they would be better off with another coach, but not thinking, I want to keep all these athletes under my wing and under my umbrella. I've invested two years or two months, whatever it may be, or I just want to grow my numbers within my group because somehow that's a, that's reflective of my own ego and my own abilities. Um, you'll start to identify if a coach has your best, best interest in mind um, by the way they're able to communicate with you, by the way they um, look at workouts, and then, of course, you know, at some point, sometimes it's if they can even let you go, but always under that umbrella thought of keep your athletes best interest in mind. We're going to say that's your number three, because I think there's more layers to it than just the trust element. To me, that's part of the way a coach builds trust. So, yes, I mean, it's not just on the athlete. It's also on the coach to foster trust. And, you know, that idea of having the athlete's best interest in mind not their own being able to put their own ego aside associated with the result that's important i think treating someone like a human is a part of that recognizing that they're more than just a goal or recognizing they're more than just a a number on their roster or a feather in their cap as a coach and part of keeping their best interests in mind isn't just about the running part, but it's also about who this person is as a human, you know, caring about their work environment, caring about their family life. Not that they have to necessarily go really deep there, but just understand that they're dealing with somebody who's a human and not just a runner. I think that's all wrapped up into that. And to me, it also extends to this idea of as a coach, I think you want to find coaches that are, as an athlete, you want to find coaches that are, that want to get your goal or for you to get your goal as much as you do, or at least get close. And I mean, I'm not tooting my own horn, but that's kind of how I feel about my athletes. When they fail, I fail. When they win, I win. Not that the win matters for me or I'm somehow keeping a win-loss column for myself, but it's just when they don't get it, I feel their pain. When they get it, I feel their joy. And I want to do everything in my power to get them their goals just like they do. And 
I don't know where that comes from, but I couldn't be more passionate about that as a coach. And I think as an athlete, that's what you want to find in a coach is somebody who, who almost or close to or does feel the same way about getting your goals as you do. Yeah, I like that you said you don't even know where it comes from because you don't. That's great. Like if someone's a listener and they're thinking about coaching and they're like, man, there's no way I could ever care about someone else's goal more than my own. Great. You maybe you shouldn't be a coach, you know, <laughs> yeah. like you're the talent. Right. And it's interesting that um, when I look at the business world, <clears throat> I've always found it kind of fascinating that we take someone who we take someone who's talented at something and reward them with leadership positions, but these leadership positions are often more coach-like. Um, someone who can think about the team under them, develop them, get the results out of them, and keep them on the team, so creating an environment that they want to be around. And And I'm using this parallel because, um, you know, I think it applies to running. I love talking in metaphors. Um, but it's just interesting that, um, you know, if an athlete is performing really well and advancing year over year over year, that's not an indication that they should be a coach. It's not always about the talent of the coach, but rather the ability to put the needs of a runner um, and even the skill set around developing those runners. Those are the indicators of a great coach. All right, so that was your number three. My number three, I think, goes hand in hand with, with that, which is that you want to find somebody who's willing to challenge you. So if they care about you and your goals as much as their own, that's great. But that isn't always that doesn't always mean being nice about it. <laughs> and sometimes that means calling you on your bullshit, challenging you, pushing you to the next level with permission and care, of course. But you want to find that person who can call you on your BS, who can say, no, you can do more who can maybe push you to a level that you didn't think possible on your own. And, you know, I think as an athlete, you also have to give a coach permission to, to go there. And as a coach, you have to seek that permission. So it's not just mean or blindly done, but is done in the context of a relationship where you said, look, this is okay. It's okay for you to push me. Or as a coach, you've asked, is it okay for me to push you? And you get that permission, but then you do it and you're willing to say, nope, that's not good enough for you. You can do more. Or in some cases, yeah, you go the other way and have to hold somebody back. Uh, you know, I, I, I see it both ways as a, as a coach myself. But as an athlete, you want to find that person who's not afraid to challenge you, to push you to that next level. Because if you can't get that, then why have a coach? I mean, that's part of the reason why you have a coach is to show you things you didn't think you could do identify those blind spots, call you on your BS. And I think if we think about, or if, if you think about the best coaches you've had in your life, whether they be running coaches or any other type of coach, you know, I had a lot of team sport coaches growing up as a kid playing soccer and other sports. And I, if I remember well, the best ones were the ones that were sometimes hard on me that said, no, Chris, you can do more. And I think oftentimes that's the case when we think about the, our best coaches is they're willing to push us. So to me, that's that's my number three. Yeah, that's a good one. I had it on my list, actually. So word for word that they can um, they can challenge. And like you said, on many different levels. So sometimes it's that 
you set too low of a goal. So being able to push them towards something higher. And this is also why it like connects to that your best interest in mind. Um, <clears throat> but but then it's the opposite too. And we, we touched that we touched on that in a former podcast. Um, you know, what do you say to an athlete that has way too lofty of a goal? Or you had even mentioned um, <laughs> it's really hard when you know that it's never even possible. I think you said like 215, just not possible for you. Right. You know, um, but the coach being able to work through that and um, and be honest with you about that. Um, because like you said, someone signed up for, they, they, came, they came to find a coach um, for a reason. And if they were fine on their own, they would have kept doing it on their own. And so, yeah, challenging you either to new heights or um, to limit to push back on your personality because of where your body might be. Um, you know, I think I'm drawing a little bit of a blank cause you covered so much, but <laughs> I did put, they've got to be able to challenge you, um, as one of my like, yeah. you know, attributes. And I qualities. think it's fairly straightforward, but you, I think it comes, you know, it kind of comes in that feeling of as, as the athlete on the athlete side, it comes in that feeling of, wanting to do well for that person not because you owe them anything but because they create an environment whether it be you know between the two of you or in the group that is one of excellence right and you think i when i show up at a workout when i show up on race day i got to raise my game because this person has high expectations for me so I, i think oftentimes it comes in that form which may not always be hey, go do this faster or have a bigger goal. It may not always come in those direct forms, but it can come in this, just creating this culture of excellence that makes you feel like, man, I got to show up every time I'm there because they exude or command this, this performance from me. That doesn't always mean I have wins, but that, sort of that feeling of just feeling like you got to raise your game when you're in the presence. And I think we all have those type of people as well. Sometimes it's a boss at work. Sometimes it's a friend. You're like, man, that person's always on their game. When I'm around them, I got to be on my game too. And I think that, that can be it too, where it may not come directly. It may come as that indirect, just ethos that they put out there that it's like, when you show up in this group, you got to be present and correct and ready to roll. Yeah. Yeah. Some people come to the table and like, they, they like when they feel a little bit intimidated by a coach. And then I would say to the ones that don't like that at all, just be a little open. You know, if they're a dick, then quit their group. But otherwise, you know, you got to embrace that challenge. Yeah. All right. What's your number four? Uh, so I'm, I'm thinking about how to apply this to like the online stuff that you're doing. And I think I've got a couple of stabs, but I wrote community. Um, they've got to be able to foster. You just said foster the environment and, and, for me, I'm thinking of the word community. That's definitely a standard for road coaches. So a lot of this stuff I wrote down, just looking at like, what do I try to hold myself accountable to and how, you know, measure myself? Like, how do I know if I'm doing a good job? Well, if I'm doing like at least a seven on a 10 scale in most of these categories, I'm going to feel pretty good as a coach. And so community is definitely one of them because while a coach can um, train you one-on-one, you know, that's going to be you're gonna you're gonna see great development. There there are definitely avenues for it, but I've I've witnessed this time and time again. Um, you always go further and faster with other people, and so a lot of times, 
I want to establish trust with an athlete up front. And I think that within the first week or two, I'm just hoping they buy me what I'm offering. But that's about it. Max two weeks. Over the long haul, I want them to buy the group. I want them to buy the environment that's around them. Because when they start leaning into those relationships, and a coach is just trying to be on the perimeters, um, I think of it as a fire and I'm just fanning the flames. If, if I can create this community where people are wanting to challenge themselves, um, then my job not only gets easier, but the athletes, the, the payout, the benefit that they get from it, when running with other people, it, it's why Rogue is so special because we've built a community. And I think if I were to think about it in the online fashion, um, maybe it's simply as like, you know, the best you can do is like having face, Facebook groups or uh, social groups or email groups where you're giving accolades to people and they're, they're remembering they're not in the fight alone, but they're getting, you know, they're celebrating someone else. You build out a Strava group. Um, I think there are ways to do it in the digital world. Um, but community is definitely a big one for me as far as evaluating rogue coaches in the community. Yeah, I mean, I think when in smaller contexts, it's this idea of fostering the feeling that you're part of something bigger. You're part of a team. You're part of a group, a community that may or may not be physical. You know, in our virtual environment, you know, we have people and 100 people training in 10 countries connected by, you know, a virtual platform, but most of them have never met each other. And that community is fostered on our social wall and the platform, our message boards of people cheering for each other, posting workouts, saying they had a bad day and here's why, and people encouraging them and we're sharing their own bad workout to, to commiserate. And then, of course, Kate and I try to bring all that together with our weekly podcast with that group answering questions, talking about results so that people feel like they're a part of something bigger. And And my aspiration is that they feel not only a part of something bigger within the context of our virtual podcast group, but they also feel a part of something bigger within the context of all of what Rogue is doing, including our physical locations. That can be hard, but... I think for the most part we've been able to do that, which is exciting for us. But yeah, you want to be a part. You want to feel like you're a part of a team, that you're part of something bigger. And if it's a one-to-one coaching environment, that at least you know you're kind of on a team with the other athletes that might that athlete that coach might coach, so that you're not alone in this. All right, my next one, which is kind of related in some ways and I'm curious to get your opinion on this because I don't even know exactly where I stand on it but at some level I think a coach can't also be your friend or at least that there has to be to me a line there that may have different modes because yes I coach people that are my friends because we are a community here at Rogue. But I try to, as someone who's pretty good at compartmentalizing, I try to separate those two modes where you've got Chris as a friend. That's one situation. Not that I'm a different person, but that we don't necessarily talk about your athlete needs in those moments. We just have a good time. And then there's Chris as a coach. 
and that's different. And I think you have to be able to maintain a little bit of a separation there because it's almost to me like a, a parent relationship, parent child relationship. Not that people like coach or children, but just that as a parent, you also have to be careful about becoming too, too much of your best, the best friend of your child, regardless of what their age, because then you get to that place where your authority or your, command or your ability to demand things from the child starts to wane when you become too close as a friend and maybe that's not a perfect analogy but I think as a coach I'm I'm always cognizant of that line and I think if you become too close from a friendship standpoint or aren't able to compartmentalize the friendship from the coach athlete relationship that can be a dangerous line because then it starts to blur the ability of, the, of you as a coach to be objective to maybe challenge the athlete the way they need to be challenged to separate the social from the performance elements and so yeah I have athletes that are friends but I try to keep those worlds separate when I'm in friend mode I'm in friend mode we don't talk about coaching or we don't talk about your workouts we don't talk about your your performances your goals whatever but then when I'm in coach mode it's different yeah, I think that's um, partially connected to that challenge piece because um, the temptation is to, you know, when you're friends, you're equals, and, and you both have needs um, that the other the other can meet. Um, and so they see you on your good days. They see you on your bad days. Um, this, one's, this one's somewhat of a tough one. I think you... It's a tough one for me because, um, you know, I'm big into the Enneagram, and I, I'm not going to explain what it is because... That's not the point of this podcast, but I'm an Enneagram 9, which is a peacemaker. And so as a peacemaker, I want everyone to be my friend. In fact, I told you I'm a lose me guy. Everyone kind of is my friend uh, to start out. Um, <clears throat> and I've coached very close personal friends. It could feel my heart rate going up um, and feeling tension in my temples when I could feel a friend not, you know, maybe complaining about running or complaining about the program um, or just not buying in. And, and I'm like wanting them, I want to let them vent because I'm their friend. But at the same time, I've got these things I've studied and observed and experienced as a runner myself that I'm like, I know I'm right on this one and I need it to be binary. I need it to be black and white. I need it. I, I need you to understand you're wrong and I'm right on this one. I'm the freaking coach here. Um, but I'm glad you went out of, you're out of, out, you went out of your way to talk about compartmentalization, and that's how I do it. Um, I've even asked friends, because now, you know, over time, being a little bit older, um, I feel like I navigate it well, but I remember those early fears and um, why you would say, like, can't really be your friend um, or at least separate the, the mode you're in. So if I'm out to dinner and we get into a conversation um, about someone's training, I'll actually ask, can I put my coaching hat on? Like, is it okay if I go into coach mode right now? And then also I take complete liberty when I'm in these physical walls. Like when an athlete, when a human is talking to me about running in these walls that we're in right now, I go straight at them like a coach would. I'm going to be like, here's my advice. Like I'm not worried about giving it unsolicited opinions. But at the dinner table I am. So at the end dinner table I ask, but within these walls I just go straight at it. Listen, and I try to keep it concise too. Like I, I don't even 
drag on like I would over conversation. Well, there's a lot of ways to think about it, and I could come at it from this angle and this angle and this angle. In these walls, I'm like, listen, this is what you're going to need to do for the last three weeks based on what you just, I mean, the next three weeks based on what you just said. So I, I literally think about putting on a different hat or asking permission to put it on if we're not in these four walls. Yeah, I agree with that. And I've, and I've found a happy medium there myself as well as just kind of going into different modes, but I do sometimes struggle with it just knowing where that line is. And, and I think some people expect sometimes, you know, for you to be able to just go in, you know, to just kind of switch in and out. And for me, I try to keep it as separate as possible. All right. So that was my four. So what's your five? My five is, um, mode. They got to be motivating or inspiring. And when I wrote this one down, I don't even, I didn't even think about what I would say under it because it feels so obvious, but I do, I don't think it's all about big speeches and I don't think it's about charisma, but I do hold myself accountable to motivate and inspire. So when I can see the shoulders of the athletes dropping, um, I consider it one of my duties to lift them back up. I, I consider um, a great coach, one of their many attru attributes would be that they be motivating and inspiring. And sadly, when we say those words, we always think about great public speakers that can give you the chills down your spine when you're a captive audience for one hour sitting in a room. And I don't think that that's necessarily the only way to define um, being motivational. Um, in fact, I, I listened to a podcast completely unrelated to running about motivation and they said the biggest thing about motivation is actually between the body and the brain and the brain being able to um, observe within the body certain actions so this guy talked about his um, daughter learning to ski and when when um, she would fall down he would encourage her kind of get her back up but and it was when she felt like she could stand on her own feet that true motivation kicked in within her soul so again in that sense the coach is motivational or the father was motivational in that regard just by encouraging her and helping her keep go along the path. So that real motivation, not just the chill down your spine, but real actual internal motivate motivation could occur within the spirit of the human. And in that case, it was a little child, but we've all got the inner child, right? Um, you know, we still need to be picked up and moved along and our spirits lifted uh, so that we can start seeing those changes happen in our body. And when those changes take over, that's when we're like, all right, got it, coach. Just get out of my way and let me run. I actually think that's where some of my power comes as a coach is I have high expectations. We do hard workouts. And I expect you to show up and do the work. But also... I believe that if you show up and do the work, you'll be able to do the work. <laughs> and I think people feel that for me. And then they do the work themselves, like the girl skiing. And it's like, oh, I can do this. It was hard, but I can do it. And then they find that magic. Because while I can get up in front of a room and be the rah-rah person, that isn't my main strength as a motivator for sure. But I agree with you. And I think it comes in different forms for different coaches, for different people, for different styles. You have those that are the big gray areas, stand in front of a room, rah, rah, brave heart kind of speech. We're going to go, you know, go fight team win, crush their souls, whatever it may be. You've got that kind of person who can stand in front of a room and get anybody fired up to do anything. 
And then you have those that have different styles and maybe some are more one-to-one motivators where they get with that individual and they can look inside that person's soul and bring out the best in them or, you know, maybe there are other ways. And so I, I do think it's important to recognize as an athlete, when you're looking for a motivator, that it doesn't necessarily have to come in the forms, as you said, that we might expect. And you just have to find that you, when you're around that person, want to do more, want to do better, want to excel. And sometimes that comes through the written word, sometimes through the spoken word, sometimes just through that vibe, through that energy that they bring. One thing I put into all my emails is a week today, today's inspiration, basically a weekly inspiration every every Thursday when I send out my Thursday email and it'll be a quote, an article, a video, a story that I pulled from the week that is always uniquely selected based on what I think the group needs to hear. And, and I've had people tell me other coaches or other groups even say, Oh, send me that. I want to use that. And I'm like, no, (laughs) it won't work. This is specifically me speaking to my group. I know what they need. That's different than what your group needs. I can't just lift it and send it to you and have you have the same effect. And so that's just another way of saying every coach has to have their own style with it, I think. Yeah, you had said something about the way they make you feel. And um, this is, I know, I, know, I know some people can uh, dismiss this as cheesy, but I love, I love one-liners. And I even love cheesy. So here we go. Um, but Mary Kondo, you know, I, I know a lot of people are watching that on Netflix and I kept hearing about it. So I watched one episode and she's the person that comes in and gets people to clean out their house. And uh, one of the concepts she talked about, though, she's even talking about um, how she works with her own daughter, looking at like toys to get rid of. And she said that um, first I teach people to pay attention to things that spark joy inside them. And then she also said, I trust my daughter's ability to identify what what sparks joy inside of her. And I love that she broke it out. One, look for that. And two, trust your ability to identify it. And we've made the parallel already with relationships, but I actually use that when it comes to dating or prospects. Um, it, I, I want to pay attention not just um, to who's physically attractive or who looks good on paper, but rather um, who sparks joy inside me. That, that is my indicator. And so the same can be applied here um, when it comes to a coach and and ultimately this topic of motivation, um, who sparks something inside you? Um, and again, whether it's the big speech or it's that one-to-one connection or it's the emails that they write, I don't know what it is. That's the cool thing about identifying a feeling with inside you is that you know when you feel motivated or not. And if you're just not getting that from a coach, be honest about it. The feeling simply lacking, whether you have great logic to back that up or not, be honest with the feeling and trust your ability to read those feelings. I've got two more. How many do you, you have? Two more you can pull. We'll make it an even twelve. Yep, I've got at least four. So all right, so we'll we'll start with we'll do two because I think that'll be enough on time. So your fifth. So I wrote they do it or they have done it, and I think within other sports, this may just be a personal bias because there's other sports where like. Um, 
you know, there are, there are athletes who love the player coach, like someone who's been a player and then they became a coach, but it's not necessarily a requirement. But when it comes to the sport of running and specifically with the marathon, I either want to know you're doing it or that you have done it. And so, again, you can study the science. You can come up with a lot of information. You can build beautiful programs. But there are times that I'll adjust workouts for my athletes just based on how I felt in a similar team rogue workout, team rogue workout. Because I can put myself on a spectrum and I can say, all right, that front pack did 12 miles with quality in it. I did eight miles with quality in it, but I felt wiped out. I'm assuming those 12 milers felt wiped out because their distance was appropriate for them. I can start evaluating and put my mind around the actual feeling of what my body's saying to me during those workouts. And that helps me translate. That helps with the adaptability. It helps me um, communicate exactly what to expect for the athlete when they go through it themselves. And so I find it important that um, if they're not doing it currently, that they have done it. Um, and bonus if they are still doing it. It's kind of the experience point. It's also a little bit of the leading by example point, even if maybe that example comes from the past. Because I do think you want you want a coach who's been there done that not just from a coaching standpoint but from an athlete standpoint you know a big part of my motivation as an athlete is to be an example for the runners that I coach and yes I'm at a point where I can still do that and I know there are some coaches who maybe that season is behind them but if they've been there themselves at some point in their career and can speak to a runner and say you know what I've done a workout like this here's how I felt this is how you're probably feeling here's how you should think about that that kind of being able to get inside the head of an athlete, I think is what you're talking about at some level. I like it. I'm going to go to my fifth, which is being willing to listen. And I talked about it a little bit before in this dialogue idea that, you know, if you have to trust, but if you don't know or don't believe you got to have that conversation and a coach has to be willing to receive that conversation and there are some coaches who wouldn't do that and who would just say, no, go do it. That's the way I've, I've always done it or that's the way it's supposed to be done versus being able to explain it or even listen to the athlete's concerns, maybe recognize that their individual place requires an adjustment for them and then make that adjustment for that situation, that context. To me, that is so critical. If you have a person who won't listen, who won't hear your concerns, who won't answer your questions who won't make a little adjustments based on what your, what your needs are. And yeah, maybe not always that's needed, but sometimes I think it's, it's needed. Then we've got a problem because the coach isn't always right. Sometimes the athlete is right. And sometimes the coach needs to recognize that, listen to it and make an adjustment to get the right outcome. Yeah, there's definitely got to be a feedback loop. Like we were saying, hey, at first come in and, and take that leap of faith, commit, trust, have a little bit of a blind blind trust. But yeah, ultimately, if we're going to have their best interest in mind and we're going to be able to adapt um, and help them ultimately get to their goal, you know, it's a complete requirement. So you got to be able to listen and, and the only thing I can really add there is that I, I do observe sometimes in new coaches um, the ability the, the desire to share knowledge knowledge so fast. Um, so like, um, you know, we we on one of the podcasts we had the the guy that wrote in and say say is 
four hours a good goal for my first um, marathon. And for me, I just instantly had like 15 questions I wanted to ask him because I'm going to get information back from that. Like, you know, no one wants a doctor. You don't want to walk into the doctor and before you even get to talk, the doctor's like, I know exactly what's going on with you. I'm going to prescribe you this medication. You're going to be like, why are you prescribing that to me? You have no idea what my symptoms are. You haven't heard me talk about where the pain is manifesting um, and to what degree that pain is manifesting and what are the other symptoms I'm experiencing. So um, I don't know what to really say to the listeners. I just say to coaches, like, don't be too eager to share everything you know un- until you've actually asked questions and listened. Yeah, you got to understand where the athlete's coming from. I also think... This is where emotional intelligence comes in. And to me, some of the best coaches have high EQ, emotional quotient and emotional intelligence, because they can read someone and be able to figure out, okay, is it better in this situation to maybe adjust from the ideal program, plan, philosophy, whatever, because this person needs that. Or is it better to maybe work through whatever block challenge that person's going through, question, help them understand, and actually do it, quote-unquote, your way? But you got to be able to read the situation, make those adjustments based on where that person's coming from. And the best managers are that way. The best coaches are that way. I think sometimes the best friends are that way, the ones who can read their friend and figure out what that person needs in that moment. Sometimes it's tough love and sometimes it's that hug and, yeah, it's okay. We'll, we'll do it your way or whatever it may be. And that's the tricky part because I find that, at least in my experience as someone who's evaluated people, coaches, who's met, you know, who's spent 39 years watching as a student of people, it's hard to train that skill. Somebody doesn't have it. I've found it's hard to help them get it. And so if you're finding you're not making that connection with somebody, maybe, maybe they're lacking in that area or maybe you guys as a coach and athlete just aren't compatible. All right. You're number six. Uh, So I'm going to put two together and just approachable and relatable. Um, So on one hand, I see this like a lot of times when, when speaking, I'll, I'll put things on a spectrum. So we talked about the challenge, the challenger, um, and a coach has to be challenging. Um, but I think first, uh, I would actually put a little more importance on this, even though they're both like very important. Um, I think a coach has to be relatable and approachable. Athletes shouldn't be afraid to come and take time from the coach. And it's so funny, even in the rogue community, how many times like people will say that on a long run or they're like, well, I don't want to bother my coach or I don't want to like take up their time. You know, it's like, no, that's the one person you should feel like you could run to and be like, listen, shit's going down. (laughs) You know, I'm not feeling very good about myself, my running, any of it. I need to talk to you. Like they, they should be that inviting spirit. And I know Um, You just talked about emotional quotient or emotional intelligence. And um, I definitely, you said motivation was one of your strong ones. This one's one of mine. Um, I do think I create that safe space for athletes. Um, And and it's somewhat born in me natural. And it was trained in the pastor sense and trained in the um, teacher sense. But like you want to create an environment where athletes um, can come to you and feel like if there's anybody I can ask a question to, it's going to be that 
man or woman. Like my coach, that's the first person I can walk up to and ask questions um, or admit insecurities or um, that's how that feedback, you know, we can't be good listeners if people can't even approach us. Well, I know you're strong at this because I see I'm not strong at approachable or at least it's something I have to work at. I'm not naturally strong at it, I guess I should say. Part of that's because I'm an introvert who's quiet, who's a little bit intense and very serious, (laughs) especially at 530 in the morning. (laughs) And so in a group context, I think I can be unapproachable because especially for that new person who hasn't yet had a one-on-one conversation with me, I I think I'm pretty intimidating, to be honest. And I've had people tell me that, not only in a coaching context, but just in a life context. (laughs) people that are scared of me and so this is something i have to work with work on and primarily i work on that by getting those one-on-one opportunities because i think when someone gets me in a one-on-one situation they realize I'm, I'm not scary i don't bite and i am relatable but but yeah but i've had people tell me like i was afraid to talk to the coach <laughs> he's scary but but you do want that, and I would say if you feel like, especially in a new relationship with a coach, they do seem unapproachable, then I think it's important for an athlete to call that out and be like, hey, I'm a little bit intimidated by you, and try to figure out with the coach how to break down that barrier. because if, And that can be a scary thing to admit or talk about, but most of the time I think if you do that, you're able to, you're, you'll be able to, with that coach, kind of figure out maybe what the, where the disconnect is there. Because I do think sometimes that's just a part of having a new relationship. You know, if you have a new relationship in life, sometimes you're not always willing to, to dive into all the details with somebody initially. But then once you get to know them, you can get to that place. And I think it's the same is true in a coach-athlete relationship. You have to develop that level of comfort with them on both sides to be able to meet in the middle on a conversation. And the coach is responsible for that. I take my responsibility in that. But the athlete is too. So they at sometimes need to reach out and be like, hey, how can we make this connection better? Number six for me, which kind of gets to brass tacks, which is that I think results matter. Results matter. A coach getting results matter. Athletes in their purview having success. I think that matters. They have to have a track record. And that's not to say that they nail it every time or nail it every season, you know, but it's it's over the long term has this coach been able to deliver results, been able to get people to their goals, been able to have people achieve at their highest level under that person. And if that's not happening, that's a problem. So, yeah, all this other fuzzy, warm and fuzzy stuff we've been talking about. <laughs> doesn't matter if that person isn't delivering. And I know personally as a coach, I take this very seriously. I don't necessarily keep a score sheet for myself, but over a season I will track results and whether people got their goals, got their PRs, got their BQs, whatever it may be. And then in season, in a context of a season, I will look at that and say, okay, how'd I do? How'd we do as a group? And based on that, as well as the other feedback from how things have gone, what do I need to do as a coach to make adjustments in the next season for the group and as a coach myself in, in my ever-evolving learning curve? 
and so getting continuously better at delivering results is hugely important. And I think you want to find a coach that can do that, that can get you that result. And that doesn't mean it happens right away. doesn't mean it happens in the first season. It doesn't mean it always happens. It just means that over time, working with them, having established that trust and that bond and that relationship, you've got a trajectory that's positive. And that sometimes when you get to that plateau, if you've had a long-time coach, then that can be sometimes a sign if it stays there that it's time to, to make a change, to make an adjustment, to find something new. And that that's an okay, normal evolution with a coach. But results. Yeah, well said. Um, I like that we sort of started and ended with these, like, you know, very fundamental ones. That, that, that's what you originally came to the table for if you're an athlete signing up for a coach. So you want your coach to know the science and the methodology so they can get you to results. And so, you know, I think I've when I've thought about the rogue family and the community, we've always kind of talked about it in such a way that uh, it's not just about the running but it's definitely not ever not about the running. Or in this case, it's not, well, it's not just about the results. It's never not about the results either. And carrying both of those in your mind at the same time, it's easy to get distracted and, and be like, well, people are happy. And that's why it leads you into that challenging mode at times where we're like, well, I've got people back on their hills and I'm glad they're having a good time and they're enjoying the party, but it's been two years and they haven't thrown down on a race and they haven't PR'd. Maybe we should go park up, poke our nose into that conversation and say, listen, you're, you're signed up with one of the best training programs out there where people are consistently getting results. I want to help you get some. What's going on here? Like, let's lead you down this path and keep, I guess, stay on track for the very original reason. If you came to the table to pay a coach um, and you wanted results, you know, they should deliver. All right. So as we wrap this up, I want to do a little reflection between well, with each of us individually, as we reflect on this list that we've just given, these 12 things, and you've got at least a couple more. I've got one I didn't get to, but we're at a time where we need to wrap. As you reflect on the list, what are some things that kind of it turns a mirror on you for? You know, so in season one, it was that methodology and science, and I like went after it with such tenacity that I actually think that's one of my strongest. I remember getting to a point where I was like, I'm talking about things that cause athletes' eyes to glaze over. I'm done. I'll read a book a year now, but otherwise it's fun. So I'd love to hear my athletes' feedback on this, to be honest, because um, you think you know yourself, and then it's interesting to see how you're perceived by your athletes. But I, I, I've tried to be very intentional about this, but that challenge piece. Um, and I, I probably showed my cards along the way in this conversation, just that I'm the – I shouldn't say I'm the most, but I know that I'm very approachable and relatable and I'm always going to try to make people feel better about who they are just because they're a human on planet Earth. I'm like, you're owed that ride. I want to be a part of making you feel better. Um, so it's that challenge that where, where maybe I, in some ways, temporarily might have to hurt someone's feeling um, and tell them that their goal's wrong or that they're not doing the work to get to their goal. So why would they have the expectation of reaching that goal if they haven't been doing that work? Coming in a little more straightforward, a little bit blunt, you mentioned that you can be perceived as intimidating. I'm like, I don't think anyone's ever said that about James Dodds ever. And I've tried, True. but I don't, <laughs> I, I want to be an intimidating figure at times, but yeah, there's, there's area for me to grow there. And, and sometimes it's because, you know, I have this base life motto that it's supposed to be fun. Life's supposed, it's meant to be enjoyed. You've got this experience, go waste yourself on the experience. And I hope it's enjoyable, but, um, 
I've recently fallen in love with literally going after exactly what I want. Like there's no more alive feeling than trying, even getting your ass kicked in the effort to get what you want. That is a righteous feeling. And so I think it takes, uh, as a coach, it, it it's required that I go in and challenge people towards that because of how alive I feel from it. And I know that's why they came to the table. Um, so I guess that's my way of like, pushing myself towards it like I, st- I can still root it instead of just thinking I need to be a more challenging person it, it's I can root it in they're better off if I bring this to them and so how do I find a way to keep bringing that to people keep bringing that challenge push them along get them outside their comfort zone because they may you know they may be butthurt for a minute but they'll ultimately thank me if I get them down that path of results and they look back on the season and say if you didn't push me like that I couldn't have gone where I went I like it. So the one I'll point to for myself, and I'll say preferences by saying there's nobody harder on on me as a coach than me. <laughs> I think we're both probably that way in the sense that always trying to be better. But I think the one opportunity for me as I think about what we talked about is just I know there are athletes in my world that I'm not connecting with fully in whatever way. And... And I could even probably in my head separate those that are the low maintenance athletes who just don't need that connection from those that are the ones that are a little bit intimidated, who have kind of held back, maybe who want more from me but aren't getting it. And or who, for whatever reason, we haven't had that opportunity to bond in in that coach-athlete way yet. And I think personally... I could point to those people if you lined everybody up in my group. And it's not many, but they're there. And I need to do a better job about proactively bridging that gap and saying, look, I don't know if you're feeling the same way, but I feel like we could have a better bond as a coach athlete. Let's talk about that and just see where that conversation goes. Because I think just recognizing it and simply stating it would basically put us on the path to solve the problem and bridge that gap so you know that's the to do in my head you know and it's to take those handful of more distant relationships that I know aren't there just because someone's low maintenance they're there because we just haven't bridged the gap yet and go bridge it well we just put ourselves out there so yeah <laughs> now they know getting all <laughs> real better, up in here for better or for worse uh, so. they know they know us now yeah Well, James, thank you. Always a pleasure. Hopefully we help people think through their coach-athlete relationships. And I would highly encourage you, if you don't have a coach yet, to seek one out in whatever form to help you on your journey because it will give you a better chance to achieve your goals, no, no doubt. And hopefully this conversation gave you a list of those things to think about as you make those decisions. We really appreciate you listening. Again, James, thanks for joining. This has been episode 139 of the Running Rogue podcast. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we will talk to you soon.